0: Jesus, our King, this morning we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in this moment be a pleasing sacrifice of worship to you, King Jesus. Amen and amen. Before we get going, I want to remind you that we not just continuing our Matthew series today, but we're also starting a new section that we've entitled the King of Glory. And so if you haven't already, make sure you grab your sticker on the way out this morning. Emphasis on the way out Don't leave the sermon in order to grab your sticker. Wait till we're done. Cool? As we begin this next section, we step back into the scriptures and we find ourselves in a text that is swirling with questions. Rocks and revelations, keys and kingdoms, and some kind of non-disclosure agreement for the disciples. What is going on here? Well, 2,000 years ago, in a border town on the edge of Israel and the world, Jesus asks a question that echoes across history. Now, for those of you who might know me, you might remember that I love questions. Right, I have 10 questions in the barrel at all times because I'm super curious. And if my wife were here, she would tell you, I have no chill. That's why I married her. She keeps me from being weird at parties. But lack of chill aside, I think that questions are super important. I think they help us grow in both our understanding, but also in our relationships. In, in particular, I think there are some questions that I think stand out in life. Right? If you can remember way back when, way back when for some of us, back in kindergarten, when someone came up to you and asked, like, hey, do you want to be my friend? Huge question, right? Or maybe you got to middle school and high school and a new question started creeping up. Are, are we boyfriend and girlfriend? The kind of question that makes teenagers and some parents irrational. Or maybe there were some bigger adult questions. Will you marry me? College, no college. Major, I'm just trying to figure out my life. There are important life questions that hit at different stages in life. But this morning, our text confronts us with what I believe is the most important question in life, no matter what stage you're in. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? Who do you believe he is? Does it even matter what you think about Jesus? Questions matter, but this one question matters most. And that's where I want us to start as we uh, uh, sit under this text today. Here's what, how our, we're going to break down this text as we eavesdrop on this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Beginning with verse 13 through 15, we're going to be looking at that question, the question we answer, the question we all have to answer. Thankfully, As we continue to overhear this exchange between Jesus and his disciples, the Lord does not leave us to just figure things out, right? The text points us to an answer that's not just an answer because in verses 16 through 17, we're confronted with Jesus explaining this is more than just an answer. This is a revelation that we believe, a revelation from the one who made us and is on a mission to save us. And then we'll round out our time in verses 18 through 20, where uh, Jesus unveils how that mission of salvation is going to spread throughout time and space through this church he builds. The question we answer, the revelation we believe, and the church he builds. That's our roadmap as we travel with the disciples and Jesus into Caesarea Philippi, this, this border town on the edge of a world that's about to meet its only hope of salvation. So if you've got your journal or your Bible, we're picking up the text right there in verse 13, looking for that question we answer. The question Jesus confronts us with this morning, who do you say I am? Look at the text. Matthew tells us, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Context. Jesus and his disciples, they've just had this confrontation with the religious leaders. Right? A, a, a provocative confrontation, I might say, that, that captures the, the, the mounting tension and animosity that Jesus' ministry has cultivated among the people who are supposed to get it, but they don't get it. And so Jesus calls them on it. And then Jesus walks away as their jaws drop and their hearts harden. And like Jesus tends to do, he and his disciples hop in a boat. They cross a lake, and, and on the way there, Jesus warns his disciples about the error that just solidified these religious leaders in their rebellion. But if you notice, the disciples don't get it either. And Jesus does not condemn them. He teaches them. And so Jesus is, in our text is added again, teaching in his brilliant, provocative, Jesus kind of way. Because you see, Jesus doesn't do coincidence or chance. He is purposeful. He is strategic. He is deliberate. And his guided tour of Caesarea Philippi is no accident. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus leads his disciples to this border town of Caesarea Philippi in order to ask a question. Yes, he's going to do miracles here. Yes, he's going to preach the gospel here to the crowds. But before he does that, he's preaching the gospel to his disciples by asking them a question right in the middle where the nations of the world and the people of God meet, mingle and where God is on a mission. Because you see, in Caesarea Philippi, there are temples everywhere. Right? There's a, there's a temple to Caesar, hence the name. There's a temple to, to Pan. There's a, there's a cave there that was thought to be the gate to the underworld. And it eventually becomes this, this temple to Pan, this Greek God of fertility. A, a, a Greek life-giving God, if you will. Jesus is surrounded by gods which are not gods. And the scriptures tell us that he asks a question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? If you notice, Jesus uses the title in this question that, if you've been counting, he's used nine times already in the Gospel of Matthew to refer to himself. It's, it's one of Jesus' favorite titles to use. Jesus is essentially asking, who do you say that I am? Who do, who, who do people say that I am? Jesus is essentially doing a straw poll here. As he tries to prepare to lead his disciples to a better understanding of who he is. Because look at how they answered. Look at the text, the very next verse. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Notice what they're reporting. From the uh, Herod-sourced fear of John the Baptist come back to life. To the whispers of Elijah or Jeremiah reincarnated. The disciples answer Jesus by essentially saying that people think you're some kind of like old prophet, like a 2.0 prophet, but someone that already was here. The crowd has no category for Jesus. So they try to fit him into one of their pre-existing categories. But Jesus doesn't fit. Square peg, round hole kind of situation. But I'll be fair to them. The crowd is partially true. Jesus is a prophet, right? Like like one scholar writes, Jesus speaks God's words and works God's wonders like a prophet. The problem is not that they think he's a prophet. The problem is that that's all they think he is. And Jesus is about to redefine their categories. And so Jesus' next step in his brilliant move is to ask another question. Or maybe better said, a more provocative form of his original question. Look at the text, verse 15, what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? This is that moment when you are trying to avoid the teacher's eye and they call on you anyways kind of situation. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, how about you guys? They may say those things about me, but what do you think? Who who do you say I am? Talk about being put on the spot. Jesus is standing in the middle of a city that represents this major intersection of religions and gods and all kinds of people that are trying to answer the question of God with their own stone replicas. And Jesus asks a question to 12 men who have left everything to follow him. Why? Because the answer to that question will change the world. The world we live in today is not all that different from Caesarea Philippi, at least spiritually speaking. Right all over the world there are statues that are trying to answer the, this question for people. Whether those statues have faces or use face ID to unlock glowing rectangles that run our lives, there are all sorts of ways we try to answer this question. From technology to atheism to postmodernism to you do you to some kind of generic spirituality that says the, the answer is, is inside of us. We just need to look inside. From Islam to Buddhism to Hinduism to teams with jerseys or calendars and schedules with time blocks that try to convince us that if we just work hard enough, that if we just get our kids into the right schools, if we just work out enough, we'll be saved from whatever we think is the worst thing that could happen to us. Whatever the functional savior we have, this question of Jesus shouts from verse 15. It cuts through the noise as Jesus stands in the middle of a religious and lost world asking the only question that can free us. Who do you say I am? And the text tells us that that answer is not inside of us. That answer comes from above. From the God who is pursuing us. Because you see, the question we need to answer cannot be answered on our own. It needs to be revealed by the God who is on a mission to save us. And it needs to be believed. And that is precisely what happens as the question of Jesus hangs in the air. And this uh, brave and brash disciple steps up to answer it. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God bold brash this is why i like peter he just goes for it man and notice what he calls jesus the messiah the christ the one we've been waiting for did you know that this is the first time in the entire gospel of matthew that jesus is called the messiah directly by someone in the story peter keeps going you are the son of the living god surrounded by idols that are made of rock and wood no more alive than the materials that they are carved out of Peter names Jesus among the living the living God not one of these dead gods he is the son of the living God the one true God who has life in himself now I will say so Peter I don't think Peter really understands what he's saying here Right, like like many people in Scripture, he's speaking more than he knows. But but I think that's what makes his answer, his confession of Jesus' identity, so remarkable. Right, he says the words, but he doesn't really understand what he means. Right? It's kind of like when you say your first "I love you," whether you're in middle school or college, you have no idea what that word means—not for another couple decades. Peter may understand that Jesus is King, but he has little to no idea what kind of king Jesus is. You know how I know that? Just read a couple verses ahead and you'll find out. Peter speaks more than he knows. When I was thinking about this, I was like, isn't that the story of discipleship? You see, Peter's confession is one step of his growth, and he's not going to get clarity until Jesus dies and comes back to life, but it is a step. Right, he is a step closer to Jesus in his understanding and his relationship. And Jesus is being patient. He is teaching. He is asking questions. This is how our discipleship works. Jesus leads us closer and closer to a deeper and deeper understanding and relationship of who he is. Little by little. In Spanish we say paso por paso, step by step. This is how we grow. We follow Jesus' lead because growth is not something we generate, it is something that God leads us into. Look at verse 17. Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You can almost feel the power of this moment as Peter finishes his confession and Jesus pronounces a beatitude. Blessed are you. Something has happened. The air is different. The tone has shifted. There are some who call this the turning point in Matthew. The plan is unfolding. Jesus is carefully defining this moment. Look at what he calls Simon Peter, son of Jonah. You are blessed because this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Do you see the contrast Jesus is making here? Simon, you did not get this from another human being. This came from heaven. It's not from Peter's brilliance. It's not from some genius of some other person. Peter wasn't looking deep inside for the answer. He did not study enough to get to the answer. He did not work out the answer for himself from what he saw and he heard. He cannot show his work because there is no work to show. Peter listened and Peter watched, but so did the religious leaders, and so did the crowd. The only reason Peter got to the answer is because it was revealed to him by God. The listening and the watching, it mattered. But the pieces were only put together because God opened Peter's eyes and ears and led him to this confession. And I need you to listen to me on this, church. I need us to be clear on this. It was not our Midwest nice or our spotless integrity or our incredibly outgoing personality, or our amazing credentials and intellect, or even our really heartfelt seeking that made the difference and brought us to Jesus. God was at work. The gospel will not let us take God's credit. We were dead in our sins and he made us alive together in Christ. He drew us to him like he drew Peter to him, like he drew the disciples to him, like he drew everybody that is called a brother or sister in Christ to him. All of us came not because of who we were, what we could bring to the team, but because of his love for us, because he loved us. The scriptures testify we love because he first loved us. The answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, is supernaturally, miraculously revealed by God. Which means that the very fact that you even thought about that question, that maybe you're not a Christian and you're here and you're thinking about it now, is proof that God is already pursuing you. He is revealing himself to you. Like Peter, we are all confronted with this question, a question we need to answer, a revelation that we need to believe. And so if you're wondering about this, I want to encourage you to chase it, to lean into answering that question. Don't let the question fade. Keep asking. In fact, I'll say that we as a church family want you to keep asking questions. Even if you're just seeking and you don't know Jesus yet, I encourage you, we we have groups like Alpha here that talk through and work through questions like this. Our life groups are intended for us to be able to ask questions in these closer kind of family relationships, come to an adult community. There are all sorts of ways to do this, but don't let the question pass. This is the most important question you could ever answer. This is the most important question, who do you say Jesus is? And the fact that you might even be wondering about that now is not because I just did a good job asking it a bajillion times. It's because God is drawing you to himself. Are you listening? Why are you here this morning? Maybe you're a Christian and you're thinking, listen, Eric, I've answered the question. Like Peter, I believe he's the Messiah, the son of the living God. Well, I want to challenge you with something else because like Peter, you might still be growing in your understanding of what that even means. What it means to live in light of that reality. That's actually why I think Jesus does what he does and he doesn't leave well enough alone. The the text doesn't end here. He keeps talking because you see Jesus is not just interested in the right answers or even revealed answers but in building a church where you can ask those questions and engage and be part of this family. Creating and cultivating this community of people who believe he is who he says he is. That he did what he said he would do. That there is salvation to be found in the good news of the son of the living God dying for our sins and coming back to life again. Don't believe me? Let me show you what I mean. Verse 18. Jesus is still talking. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus continues his response to Peter's confession here, and he uses the word church for the first time in the gospel of Matthew. It's actually only one of three times that that word church is used in any of the gospel, and then two other times are just a few more chapters in this book. To Peter's heaven-revealed confession, Jesus reveals another part of his earth-shaking plan. He is not stopping at 12. He is building a church. A church that will go across time and space and show up in all these beautiful local church families that are all tied together in the one Savior. And this church is going to be built on a solid foundation. And this is where things get interesting. Because the question for us, and I think the question that's throughout church history is, what in the world is this foundation? In other words, what in the world does Jesus mean when he says this word, rock? Is he talking about Peter? Is he talking about what Peter has just said, his confession? Is he talking about himself? To the Roman Catholic, this is the beginning of the papacy, right? A a succession plan of popes who succeed Peter as the first pope. To many Protestants, the answer is actually a shift in focus. Jesus is not focused on Peter as much as on Peter's confession. Some try to shoot the middle and say, it it is about Peter, but not in a Pope-ish kind of way. More like Peter was first, important, but not a Pope. So which is it? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, I'm going to bring you to what I think he's talking about. But I I want to point out two ditches on the side of the road before I ask us to walk this road together. And then I'm going to explain to you how I got there. I'm going to show my work like a good teacher asks you to do. And then I'm going to tell you why it matters. But I need you to take a sip of coffee so so you can ride with me. Cool? So here are the ditches on the side of the road. I think there are two temptations in this text. We are often reading a text like this, tempted to either overemphasize or underemphasize Peter. Right, Either Peter is a pope, or he doesn't matter at all. And I think that misses what's actually happening here. I think there is something special happening between Peter and Jesus. I mean, after all, Peter is the one who spoke up, right? God, God revealed the truth about Jesus to him. That's a big deal. Peter matters, but he is not all that matters. And he does not matter more than the other disciples. In fact, in just a few verses, like I said earlier, Peter will mess up just as bad as he got it right here. If you track with the story of the early church, Peter is not the one who calls all the shots. At one point, Peter is even called out by Paul for making a huge mistake and jeopardizing the preaching of the gospel. Like one pastor writes about this text, this verse has something to do with Peter and everything to do with Jesus. So to get to the Pope or some kind of apostolic succession plan is, I think, to read a lot into this text. In fact... In a gospel account where Peter's last words are denying Jesus, I think we need to be focusing on the one whose last words are that all authority has been given to him. So here's what I think is happening here. I think the rock in this text is not Peter, is not Peter's confession, but is the one that Peter is confessing, Jesus. I was convinced of this by the work of a pastor-theologian we referenced before, Doug O'Donnell, but I'll give you the argument like I told you, drink your coffee I'll show you how I got there and I'll tell you why it matters. Okay? Okay? Just making sure you guys are awake and alive with me. You got to ride. Here we go. Verse 18, the first thing I want you to notice is a very tiny but I think special word, a funny little word that describes the word rock. Do you see it? It's the word this. Now I will confess that I'm a huge word nerd. But all linguistics aside, I think there is something important happening here. You see, Jesus is clearly talking to Peter, right? Verse 17, blessed are you, revealed to you. 18, I tell you, you are. 19, I give you whatever you bind, whatever you loose. You, Peter. But he's also talking about himself. Verse 17, my father, I tell you, I will build. Later, I will give. Normal conversation until we slow down and see the word this. Not, you are Peter, and on you, the rock, I will build. But you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build. Why in the world does this matter? Because I think the word is a speed bump that should cause us to slow down enough to wonder what in the world Jesus is talking about here. Hold that thought. I'll come back to it. Second thing I want you to see. Another thing that we need to consider as we read this text. No text in scripture ever stands alone. It is always surrounded by its context. It is always held together by the whole scriptures. And so if you and I were to sit down and like nerds look for the word that is transited as rock here, what we would find is that in Matthew it only shows up four times. Two times in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about Jesus' teaching in our very amazing text this morning, and then later to talk about the rock that actually is part of Jesus' tomb. Interessante. Now you might go, okay, Eric, how about the rest of the New Testament? Great question. That rock, that from Matthew to Revelation, that word rock only shows up 12 times. And when it's not talking about a literal rock, it is always talking about Jesus. Only ever about Jesus. Even in the letters of Peter, when he's writing about living stones, he actually uses a different word. And get this, Peter is never called the rock in the New Testament. He's not even called a stone anywhere in the New Testament In fact, when Paul writes Ephesians 2, he talks about the house of God, the church. It's built on a foundation. Perfect time to single out Peter. He does not single out Peter. The text tells us that that God, the house of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the most important stone in the foundation, not Peter. Okay, Eric, but okay, what about the whole Bible? Y'all are on a roll. Great question. In the entire Bible, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because it wasn't originally in Greek, that word rock that's used in our text only ever refers to God as our rock. The Psalms call him our rock, our safe place. No one else is described like this. Okay, you've been with me so far, I think. That little word this makes us slow down to wonder what's going on, and then the word rock shows up all over the place in the Bible, but it is only ever about God. That is why I think this rock is Jesus. Doug O'Donnell paraphrases the text to make it easier to see, and he says it like this. He says, I tell you that you are Peter. Jesus is talking. And on this rock, visualize Jesus pointing to himself, if that helps. I, yes, me, Peter, not you, will build my, not your, church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give. Jesus is still the subject. You, okay, Peter, let's talk about what you're going to do. The keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter confesses the revelation he receives from the father about Jesus. And Jesus expands this revelation to affirm his answer and explain how he, Jesus, as the savior, will build his church. And this is why the church is built on him. He is both the architect and foundation, the designer and the cornerstone. And here is why this matters. Here is the payoff of all of this nerd language. Because this church is not built on any human no matter how right their answer is. It is and always has been a community of people who submit to who God has revealed Jesus to be. The Messiah. The son of the living God. The kingdom has come. The people are being gathered and Jesus will build his church Not on a pope and not on your favorite pastor that's on TV. He's building his church with imperfect humans who still need to grow, who know that they need him. Imperfect people who recognize him, who humbly accept the revelation of God, answering the most important question, who do you say I am? It is Jesus who builds and he on who the church is built. This is why Jesus continues saying that the gates of Hades will not overcome it quick cultural history lesson the gates of a city are super important for security Hades is another language another name for for the realm of the dead what Jesus is saying here is that death and the one who tries to wield the power of death Satan will not overpower the church he is building the attacks of Satan will not defeat the church By the power of the living God, the church will overcome death every time they preach the gospel, every time God saves another person from being dead in sin to being alive in him. This is why the church is built on Jesus. But I also think we need to be careful here. Look at the context of this conversation. All of what Jesus is saying is based on Peter's confession, God's revelation, this identity of who Jesus is. It is not based on some kind of war room conversation planning tactics and strategies for some kind of culture war. In fact, in the very next passage, we read that Jesus' strategy is actually upside down. Right? It is victory through death, salvation through sacrifice. The upside-down, inside-out way of the kind of church that Jesus is building is precisely through death. Jesus is certainly talking about overcoming, but Jesus is the one who defines what overcoming looks like. For Jesus, the way up is down. The way to win is to lose. The way to life is death. And the church he builds follows him through death into resurrection. Jesus died for the church and nothing in this world or the next can overcome it because he is the one who builds his church. But he does build his church through his people. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now in this passage, Jesus is still talking to Peter, but in just two chapters, Jesus will actually say something pretty similar to all of the disciples. So what's going on here? Right? What, what are these keys and what's all this about binding and loosing? Well, let me start with the keys. You see, I still remember the very first time I got a, a set of keys to my house as a teenager. Right? It comes with this weight, this like sense of responsibility. You see, not only could I get in the house, but I could let other people into the house. Right? Carrying keys is a sign of authority. Right? I am authorized to let people in here. I think this is what Jesus is getting at with this illustration because later in Matthew, Jesus applies this picture to the religious leaders, but he says the opposite. He says that they shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, that they won't go in and they won't let anyone else in. Instead, Jesus' disciples are to do the opposite. They're supposed to preach the gospel that invites all who believe into the kingdom. They're not the ones who determine who gets in. God is the one who does that. He is the one who reveals himself to people. But he does that through the preaching of the gospel. And in that preaching, there is a clear message. Believe in Jesus and you're in. Reject Jesus and you're not. God's people carry the keys because they communicate the message. The gospel is a restatement that announces what God has already decided. Those who repent are forgiven. Those who do not are not. The church, its leaders, everybody that makes up the church, they hold these keys so long as they hold to the key message of the kingdom, the gospel. But there's another illustration Jesus uses here, and it's not just about keys. He starts talking about binding and loosing. This is language Jesus is borrowing culturally from the way some some rabbis would function, right? Binding and loosing was another way of saying how, how they applied God's decrees, what he said. Here's what God said. Here's the situation. This is how this applies. The keys are the way to get in, but binding and loosing is about how we live once we are in. I actually think it's another way of talking about the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's another way of talking about what Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is how you get in. You believe. You you declare that belief through baptism. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is how you live once you're in the kingdom. Jesus is telling his church that by preaching the gospel, they're there to help people get in and live in the kingdom. This verse is not saying that heaven has to do whatever the church says, it is not saying that the, the church lets people into the kingdom or denies access, and God just has to comply. What Jesus is saying is that the church, its leaders, the entire church, all of their authority, it comes from him, from the gospel. Because at the end of Matthew, he is the one who holds all authority. And at the end of the Bible in Revelations 1 and 3, it is Jesus who is holding the keys. It is Jesus who builds his church, not us. It is Jesus who defines himself, not us. Which is why we get what we get in verse 20. Look at the text. Then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Well, that's anticlimactic. (laughs) What's happening? Well, let me first tell you what's not happening. Jesus is not scared to own who he is. He is not trying to hide. What Jesus is wisely avoiding is the box that everyone is trying to put him into. He is not just a prophet. He is something more. And he wants the answer to his question, who do you say I am, to be answered by faith and obedience to him, not some kind of a nationalistic frenzy or some kind of power grab to get close to Jesus with his miracle-working power. Church, knowing Jesus is the Messiah is one thing. Knowing what it means that he's the Messiah is something else entirely. Do you understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God? Like I said earlier, maybe you're here and you don't believe in Jesus. You have no idea how you showed up this morning, but you knew you had to be here. Or someone dragged you here and you just kind of finally gave in. Maybe you you don't believe in Jesus, but now this question that I keep asking is stuck in your head. My encouragement again to you is don't ignore it. Lean into it. Ask questions. Come to Alpha. Trust the person who brought you. Talk to someone at the desk. Talk to me. Ask questions. But you might be nervous to ask because you might be surprised what happens in the answering. Or maybe you are here and you believe in Jesus, but you realize as I've been talking that you've been defining Jesus in your own way, right? You you have not let Jesus define himself. You believe in Jesus according to your own categories, right? Just just a prophet who says nice things about God or, or maybe someone to help when things get really hard or... Someone to give you a bunch of information but but not really change anything about your life? Maybe you were like, I don't know if I'm doing that, Eric. Well, here's one way that I think you can figure out if you've been doing that. When when Jesus does something that you don't think he should do, how do you react? In humility or in anger? Do you come to him even if you're broken, even if you're struggling, if you're trying to figure it out, or do you pull away? Well, Jesus, if you're like that, I think you and I need a break. This is why I think this is the the most important question we could ever answer. Because who you think Jesus is affects everything. From how you believe the world works, to who you believe you are, to, to where you look for meaning and salvation. And so this morning, I want that question to hang in the air for all of us. As we pray and as we sing, that we might really consider Who do you say Jesus is? Is it who Jesus says he is? And if it's not, would you humble yourself to find out who he really is and follow him? As that question hangs in the air, I want us to pray. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, as we continue to open our hearts and minds to you, would would you remind us as we sing that we do indeed have a Savior, that Jesus died for us, that that there is a way back to you, God, that that Jesus came back to life for us, that there is life in you. We praise you, God, because you are our King of kings. Would you humble us this morning? Would Would you show us who you are, that we might answer that question, even if we not fully understand it, that we might humbly answer the question that you are the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior, the Son of the living God who calls us from death and sin to life in him. Would you draw us closer to you, we pray. Amen and amen.